Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter one. We'll be there in just a moment. As you're turning there, I wanna remind you guys that we are in the middle of 21 days of prayer as a church. And so if you haven't downloaded our app, I encourage you to do that uh, so that you can have some focused prayer over the next several days as our nation is in a very heated election, not to mention all the other uh, issues that we've been facing as a country. And you know, that's really why we felt like it was a good idea to, to do a sermon series entitled We the People uh, and really be able to talk about some of these important uh, issues that we as a church uh, actually face as citizens of heaven living as citizens in the United States of America. And so we've been talking about how the people of God engage the politics of America. I told you at the beginning of the series that, you know, the world really doesn't want you to talk about what you believe in. The world would rather you just shut up and, and, and don't talk about it and, and don't engage and, and just get out of the way, just be silent. But the reality on these issues is that God has spoken. He has spoken and in his word brings life, brings hope and power. And we want our world to experience this hope. We want this world to experience this life. And so we cannot be silent. Uh, today, we're gonna continue with another difficult issue. Uh, today in American society and really the world, uh, we're facing a sexual revolution. It's a revolution that seeks to transform the very definition of marriage, seeks to transform the very idea of family and gender. It's a revolution that really is changing the entire moral structure and fabric of our life. It's a revolution that wants to change how humanity has recognized men and women uh, since the dawn of man, since, since uh, centuries uh, as, as human beings were first created. America is living, no doubt, in a real life gender nightmare. And this revolution is affecting every area of our life. And it's going to demand and is demanding that you accept it and affirm it. And if you don't agree or you get in the way, you're gonna get bullied potentially. You might get canceled. Uh, you're gonna be uh, sought to, to and, and forced to comply with these beliefs. And if you don't comply with the agenda, you're gonna be deemed immoral. And in many ways, you're, you and I will be deemed as harmful to society. One example of this is the progressive left wants to uh, enact, wants Congress to enact what's known as the Equality Act. The Equality Act is an amendment to the 1964 Civil Rights Amendment or Civil Rights Act, which gives African-Americans uh, protection as uh, minorities. And so the Equality Act seeks to redefine sex and redefine gender identity and uh, initially and, and, and essentially guaranteeing protection for those who uh, are, are uh, identifying with uh, as another gender or want and seek uh, to, to, to live in a same-sex relationship. So giving them civil rights uh, laws and protection with no protection for religious organizations or people of faith like us. So the act would treat businesses, adoption agencies, churches, even you and I as discriminators if in fact we operate on the belief that human beings are, are created as either a male or a female or if we affirm that marriage is specific to one man and one woman um, 
relationship. So we're facing pressure to conform. Uh, Students, high schoolers, middle schoolers are facing pressure to conform. Uh, In recent uh, polls, it shows that uh, younger people, younger Americans overwhelmingly support same-sex marriage and LGBTQ um, issues. Uh, Sadly, many Christians and even many churches have also uh, surrendered to the demands and ideology of this sexual revolution as well. So at this point, you might say, Trent, why does it matter? I mean, why can't we just let people marry who they wanna marry? Why can't we just let people have sex with whoever they wanna have sex with? It's not gonna hurt me. It's not gonna hurt you. And I would say, well, first of all, it is not about letting anybody do anything. I'm not letting anybody do anything. You're not letting people do anything. They're gonna do, uh, and people are gonna do what they want to do. So it's not about allowing something to happen. It's about proclaiming the truth of God's word because we care about people. And we care about their soul. We care about their eternity. And we want them to experience this life-giving power that only comes through the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I would give an example like this. Suppose your neighbor asks you to babysit uh, uh, their toddler. And so you're in charge and, uh, of taking care of this toddler. And I know for a lot of men, that's scary, but you're totally in control of taking care of this young life. And, and let's just say this kid wants to go outside and play, so you let him. And then he wants to go play out into the middle of the highway, a, a very busy highway. And all these cars are zooming by 60 and 70 miles an hour. And you just simply let this child play in this busy highway. What's gonna happen? Well, eventually this child is gonna get severely hurt and it's gonna be because of your negligence and your lack of stewardship to care for the child, right? You're the one to blame in this situation. And as Christians, it's not only our right to stand and and steward the truth of God's word, it's our duty to share the truth of God's word to neglect our responsibility to share the word of God as it relates to sexuality would be negligence on our part. It'd be like us allowing a toddler play in the highway endangering their life. So we do have a role to play because we care about people. What's at stake is that your friends, your family members who want to live a a same-sex lifestyle or who are struggling with their uh, sexuality, in these relationships, they're gonna experience pain and suffering. They're gonna experience emptiness in those relationships. Just like you and I would also find pain and suffering and emptiness if we don't live according to the sexual standards outlined in scripture as well. In fact, there are probably many people here today Many people watching from home who are and have experienced painful situations because of sexual sin. And if you're um, in the room today, if you're watching from home today, um, there are some who are struggling with a same-sex attraction. You're struggling maybe with your sexual identity and, and you wonder if there is a place for you in God's church. And I want you to know As we look around this room 
And everyone who's tuning in from home today, every single one of us is struggling with something. The church is a place for you to ask questions. The church is the right place for you to discover who you are. It's the right place for you to figure these things out because the church is the only place you'll find honest answers and you'll find life-giving answers because the church is the place where the truth of God is revealed. So listen, that's why it's so important that we attend and support churches that preach and teach the truth, right? It's not always going to be easy for us to hear it. It's not always going to be easy for us to actually live it out. But I promise you, God's plan is the right plan. And so that's why we turn to the word. So what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does Bible, the Bible say about gender, marriage? These are issues that I want to discuss today. I want to share it with you today. And we start very clearly with sexual sin in general. And so as it relates to homosexuality, the Bible is clear on this issue. It is sin and we must call sin, sin. Leviticus 18.22 says, you shall not lie with the male as with the woman. It is an abomination. First Corinthians 6, 9 and 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a long list of sins in these two verses here, but clearly homosexuality is one sexual sin that is against God's design. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What are those dishonorable passions? He says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So I want us to I want you to hear that last phrase, receiving the due penalty for their error. That's where we want to empathize with a group of Americans and, and, and a group who are suffering and will continue to suffer unless the truth of the gospel penetrates their heart. Sexual sin is clearly outlined in the Bible. So as Christians, we must stand with God's word, seek to live it out, not because we hate anyone who disagrees with us, not because we don't like them, but because we want the best for them. We want the best for our society. And when the family unit is broken down in a culture, in fact, the culture itself is broken down. And listen, I wanna be clear about this. I don't have any personal authority to say who you should sleep with or not sleep with or who you should date or not date or who you should marry or, or not marry. But as Christians, we believe in the tenets and the principles of the word of God, not because human beings created it, because, but because God Almighty has actually revealed it to us in his word. 
And we're either gonna submit to it or we are going to reject it. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, it says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, we're trustees, we're ambassadors called upon to actually share these divine revelations with our neighbors and with our family. God has revealed himself to us through the Holy Scriptures. It is right here in print. And it's our responsibility to pass these understandings and and to teach this not only to our neighbors, but also to our children so that they would find peace with God, so that they could please God, honor God, and then receive the blessings that God wants to give to them. So how do we understand gender in the Bible? For that, I want us to look at Genesis chapter one. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis one. We're gonna look at verse 27 and 28. Leave your Bible open. We're gonna look at a few other passages today. Here's what the scripture says in the beginning here, the very first chapter. So God created mankind in his own, excuse me, his own image, which is the Imago Dei. No other creation was created in the image of God. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So essentially, in the very first chapter of the Bible, we learn that the human race was created with two sexes, right? God creates a male and God creates a female. So basic biology and science teach us that males and females are quite different. Of course, we are equal, but we are not identical. Equal, but not identical. 1 Peter 3, 7, God refers to men and women as fellow heirs of the grace of life. So all throughout scripture, we're we're seeing that uh, males and females are equal in every way. But of course, we have our own unique ways of looking at life. We have uh, our, our own unique giftedness. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. We're equal but we are not identical. And so this means that the term male and female is not a social construct that was forced upon you uh, when you were born. The the idea of male and female was was not created by doctors, was not created by your mom or dad that was forced upon you to accept and, and, and it wasn't opposed upon you. Culture did not create the idea of gender in male and female. You know who did? God did. Your creator did. And your basic biology and your basic makeup as a male, as a female was not an accident. You were born biologically as a male or female in God's design and as a gift to you. So God designed you this way and it was God's gift to you in that design, in that creation, certainly. Okay, culture has uh, its own stereotypes of what a man is and what a woman is, right? And so as faithful followers of Christ, we wanna call out any unbiblical stereotypes, stereotypes like women should stay at home. That's, that's false. That's not biblical. Uh, men shouldn't share their emotions. That's a stereotype. We, we call out stereotypes that are unbiblical, but then we support and we stand for those qualities uh, and, and those biblical concepts 
as, to, uh, as it relates to what a man and a woman actually are. So what are some of those? Well, I'm glad you're thinking like me today. Let's flip over a page in Genesis chapter two. In verse 18, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm gonna create a helper for him. So he creates Eve. And then in verse 23, look at your Bible. It says, this, at la- this is Adam speaking. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So I know you've read this, I know you've seen this, but let's not miss the importance of this scene. Adam and Eve are in fact getting married in these verses. And God wants Adam to know that he needs someone equal to him, but different from him. So that Adam and Eve could do things that they would never be able to do uh, alone or apart from one another. They were equal in dignity. They were equal in value, equal in worth, but distinctly different. And that's important for us to recognize. I, I guess I could clearly say it like this. God created marriage to be a union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Elsewhere, the Bible says what God has joined together in reference to marriage, let no man separate, right? So you say, how do you know this is actually a marriage? Well, it clearly said that, that the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. So, so they were husband and wife. That was their wedding ceremony, right? So let's notice that marriage was a part of God's design even before sin, right? Sin enters the world in Genesis 3, the fall happens, but, but this is before that. So God creates marriage, this institution, before sin enters the world, before any nation is created, before any government is created, before any laws are enacted, God is creating marriage. Marriage is very unique. It's extremely significant to God. And today I wanna close with why. Why is it significant? Why is it so important? I mean, we, we see so many people getting married and getting divorced and in, even in you know, Christian circles, we see kind of a diminishing of marriage and, and its value in culture. And yes, our country and, 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 and our government has clearly devalued marriage, but for God, marriage holds something much deeper. And I think it's important that we, we get it, we understand it. And from the very beginning, God created marriage for a purpose. If you have your Bible, flip over to Ephesians 5. We'll be there in just a second. But in Ephesians 5, Paul says that marriage is a profound mystery. And we often read that and we think in terms of marriage is confusing and marriage is hard. And, and, and so we kind of laugh about it and we're like, amen, Paul, it is crazy. I don't know, you know how to do this thing right. But that's not what he's talking about. Even, even though there are a lot of difficult uh, things uh, in marriage that are, are hard, he's saying that in marriage, God is painting a picture for you. It's an illustration for you. It's, a, it's an image for you of, of his love for you 
and for his church. So most of us only look at marriage as kind of a what's in it for me. It's, it's just kind of a, a way that we've grown up. You date and then you kind of need, need to do the next adult step so we get married, right? And so we kind of think in terms of that. We've watched so many romantic comedies that we kind of have a false idea of marriage. You know, uh, we, we have this idea that when I find this special person that they're gonna complete me, right? Or, you know, this person is gonna fulfill all of my needs. I'm, I'm never gonna be lonely again. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be happy. Um, I'm, I'm gonna have my needs met. You know, we're gonna be happy all the time. It's just simply not the case, is it? Marriage is in fact fulfilling in so many ways. Um, marriage is amazing. There's enjoyment, pleasure, friendship, fun. All of that is a part of God's plan, but that's not all that's happening. God created marriage to in fact, show us a greater reality and a greater image. And, and, and he's given us marriage as an illustration essentially of the gospel. And so when we see marriage, a healthy marriage it is a presentation of God's love for you. It's a presentation of the gospel. And so in Ephesians 5, 21 and 23, we're gonna read several verses here that seem anti-women. We kind of cringe when we read it, right? But there's so much happening here on a deeper level that we've gotta, we've, we as the church have gotta understand it, right? And so here we go. He says this in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's, that's, that's how we start here in verse 21. Remember, the Bible wasn't written with verses and chapters and subheadings. All of that stuff is kind of what we added to kind of organize it. So in your Bible, uh, really the section on marriage starts in verse 21, but that's not actually, uh, I think, where we need to start. So verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is, this is all in that same vein. He then says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Obviously, men, we're not doing this for our wives, right? Like we're not sanctifying her you know, physically with water here. Something deeper is happening. This is a mystery, right? He's, he's unpacking this mystery so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, okay, now here's how we're, we're, we're this is applying to us husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, he says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, so let me unpack this a little bit today. 
because it means so much as it relates to Christianity and this whole issue of sexuality in our country. So God is designing husbands to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church, a picture, an image. And in the same way, uh, we are really, really seeing him saying, I, I, I'm doing this, I'm giving my life here, right? As a picture of my love for the church. And God designs wives to be a reflection of the church's love for Jesus and the way that she relates to her husband's. Uh, so what about all the anti-women submit cringy parts of this text? Bible says that Christ is the head of the church. Here's what this means. It means that Christ leads by giving his life for the church to make the church holy, cleansing the church from sin, right? With the washing of the word of God. So the word of God washes us, cleanses us, makes us holy. Christ is doing this as our leader, you know, spotless, without wrinkle, holy and blameless. So for Christ to be the head of the church simply means this. It means that he gives everything he has for the good of the church, even his life, submitting himself to the church and the needs of the church and the needs of the people. Why? For their good. So in like manner, husbands being the head of the wife means that a husband is to give everything that he has for the good of his wife. So he submits and sacrifices and does all that he can in every way that he knows possible in order to, uh, for her good and for her benefit. So it's the husband's role uh, to now lead in that way. It's the husband's responsibility to honor, to lay down his rights, to even lay down his life for his wife. When a husband leads in this way, it's a picture of Christ's love for his people. It's not anti-woman at all. It's actually pro-woman. I've never met a woman who doesn't want to be in a relationship with a man that would do everything he can for her good. Right? I don't think there's anyone in here that would say, that's not the kind of husband that I want, right? This is the, this is the image of what Christ is calling us to. So I'll never, I'll never forget watching um, my dad care for my mom uh, after she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. I mean, I knew that he cherished her and loved her, but when she got really sick, I saw his love in a way that I haven't seen, that a, a way in which he was willing to lay down everything that he had for her good. He served her in every way that he knew how and cared for her every way he knew how. Um, sleepless nights, doctor visits, treatments, medication, machines, uh, everything in his life was put on hold to care for my mother. Everything that he gave himself and, 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 and did in that, in that season um, was for her good. It was a powerful portrayal of Christ's love for his church, willing to lay down and put everything in your own life aside for the good of your spouse, your wife. That is the gospel on display. Verse 24, 
He says, likewise, the church submits to Christ. And then he says in the same way, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this is the flinching passage, right? This is the one where we're like, why do we flinch here? Because we don't know what submit means. So often we think uh, submit means inferior, right? Oh, so now we think that men are superior to women, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible means. We've already seen that men and women are equal in dignity, value, worth, everything. So submission must obviously mean something else. We're talking about a history of, you know, churches and Christians misusing this verse. I get all that. But what does it really mean to submit in marriage? Submission means to yield to another person in love. That's it. That's it. Listen, every single one of us, if you truly love somebody, you are going to submit to them in different ways at different times for different reasons. And when you think about a husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church, you're talking about a man who's willing to live in submission to her needs, correct? That's what it looks like. That's how it's played out. I mean, all throughout the scripture, we're told to submit. Even verse 21 of, of Ephesians 5 says that we're to mutually submit to one another. I mean, we see um, in the Bible, we see that young men are told to submit to older men in 1 Peter 5. Church members are to submit to uh, faithful pastors in Hebrews 13. All of us are called to submit to governing authorities. We read that in Romans 13 on week one. This doesn't mean that older men are better than younger men. Doesn't mean that pastors are superior to church members. It doesn't mean that the government is superior or better than all of us in the room today. No, these are roles and structures that God has given to us for our good. So even in the Trinity, we see submission. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we use it to describe what God teaches us in his word, um, that, that God is revealed as one person, but he's revealed in three persons. He's, he's one God in three persons. So you've got God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. And even in the Trinity, in the Godhead, you see the Son submitting to the Father's will. You see the Spirit submitting to the Son. You see this submission happening even in the Godhead. As followers of Christ in the church, we're called to submit to Christ as our head. God wants the world to see a, a heavenly Father that is not a domineering chauvinistic God and all of his followers begrudgingly, unhappily follow him. <laughs> it's not what's happening. No, we gladly and willingly submit to his leadership. And in the same way, God is calling wives to submit to the loving leadership willingly uh, to her husband as he lays down his will, his life, for her good. And this is a picture of marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. And this is why it's so important in so many ways. Marriage is about submitting to each other's needs, wants, desires. And as we do this, we're demonstrating to the world what it really looks like to love someone. This is the only way the world sees real and true love. Real and true love is not in who you have sex with, it is who you're willing to die for. 
And as we see this demonstrated in our marriages across the nation, we see an understanding and an, and an idea that there is a God who loves us and serves us and submitted his life to us to save us for our good and for his glory. But so many distort the roles in marriage today and the world has a hard time seeing the gospel in our marriages, if we could be honest. Husbands distort their role of leadership and become domineering and insensitive, oppressive, and that denigrates the equality of women. Or on the flip side, the husband goes in, in the other direction and becomes a, a passive weenie. <laughs> Neither extreme is good. As husbands, we don't want to be a domineering jerk. We don't want to be a passive weenie. We want to be a man that demonstrates the gospel. And to do that, you're going you're gonna to love, you're going to serve, you're going to protect, you're going to care for, you're going to provide for, and you're going to do this uh, physically for her needs, emotionally for her needs, relationally and spiritually for her needs. And that means instead of coming home and watching TV all night after work, you're gonna have to engage. Instead of coming home and going to the garage all night to do whatever project you're working on, you're gonna engage. Instead of zoning out with email and social media all night, you're going to engage. Why? Because Jesus submitted himself to his church and he gave everything that he had to serve his church. And men, that is the gospel message. And that's the message we need to show our wife, we need to show our children, and we need to demonstrate to a lost and broken world. And when we do that, they will find purpose and hope in Jesus. This is why it is so valuable that we as the church, as Christians, stand up for God's definition of marriage and for gender and sexuality. Not because we hate gay people, we don't. Not because we think we're better than same-sex couples, we aren't. Not because we wanna take away anyone's rights at all, but simply because we are for God's definition of marriage, we are for the very essence of the gospel being displayed to and for this world. Salvation is not found in your sexual identity. Purpose is not found in your sexuality. Those things are only found in the gospel and in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And in him, you and I only find our true identity. And if we want our friends and we want our neighbors to experience that joy and peace and purpose, then we've gotta be about the business of showing, by example, living it out, and by actually sharing it. Salvation is the key, right? So yeah, the government should create laws that affirm God's definition of marriage, that marriage should be reserved for one man and one woman for a lifetime. But our hope is not in the Supreme Court. Our hope is not grounded in laws. We know laws aren't gonna change anyone's heart. Our hope is in Jesus. He is the head of the church and we stand with him because we want our gay friends. We want the transgender community and those in that community who are our friends, we want them to know that life is only found in Jesus. Life is only experienced in and through his 
love. And so it's through that loving relationship, understanding that Christ died for your sins, understanding that when you submit to him, you are saying, God, I, I am turning away from my sin. Oh, I'm turning away from what I desire, what I want. I'm turning away from my understanding. I'm letting loose of that confusion and that fear. And I am turning to you, Jesus. When you receive him into your life, he will transform your life and he will give you life everlasting. The sexual revolution promises freedom. It promises happiness, but it will not make good on its promises. It can't, it will not, because the promises are false. Hormone treatment, gender reassignment surgery, they all promise fulfillment, they all promise uh, peace, they all promise acceptance, that you'll be happy with yourself finally. But listen, if you're struggling with an attraction with the same sex, know that that sexual sin, even though it might be accepted by culture, even though it might be accepted by Hollywood, sexual sin is always punished by God. His path is the right path. And so I urge you, submit to his love today. I urge you, submit to his leadership today. Find true identity through a relationship with a God who loves you and knows you by name and created you as a man or a woman with a purpose and and, and a life that he wants to bless and use to do great things. Church, even when friends and loved ones decide to reject God and decide uh, to pursue those uh, relationships that are contrary to his word, we've got to hold on to the biblical truth of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. It might mean that you get bullied. It might mean that you get canceled. It might mean that your business loses money. It might mean that you lose some friends. But if we misrepresent what sin is according to the Bible, we're gonna cripple the work of Jesus in the world. If we reject the teaching of scripture on sexual morality, we're we're gonna confuse the world. They're not gonna understand why they need to repent. If we're confused about this message, if we're sharing a different message than what is taught in the word. And church, the, the, this sexual revolution is going to prevent in its wake a lot of hurting victims. In other words, as people discover that this same sex um, attraction that they feel or this, this, this um, confusion in their gender and they, they, they follow a path that the world is presenting to them, someday they might realize that it's only bringing pain and suffering in their life. And then where do they turn? Then who do they have? And I say 
they have the church. I say they have you, they have me. That we would not turn our back, that we would not reject, that we would openly receive anyone who humbly pursues Jesus. And that's our role. And so I say today that it's, it's our role, it's our job to stand for the truth, to actually show the world what real love looks like by loving your wife, by, by, by showing her what it, what it means and looks like to love her as Christ loves the church and presenting that as a picture and image to the world of what the gospel really is. And yeah, it means willing to mentor and disciple someone who might be struggling with their sexual identity. Yes, it means voting for leaders who appoint righteous judges and create policy that help affirm God's definition of marriage and sexuality. It means all of that. But it also means that we've gotta be willing to take that step and voice the truth of God's word. And for too long, the church has, has erred. We've either remained silent or when we've spoken, we've spoken in hate. But just because we've made mistakes in the past doesn't mean we have to continue to make those mistakes. And lastly, I would say what we've gotta do, what we need to do, what we must do is pray. We, we pray for our marriages. We pray for the marriages in our church. We pray for the marriages in our community. And yes, we pray for those who struggle and who are confused today in our community. And that's what I wanna to do today to close. Instead of singing a song today and closing, I just want us to pray together as a church. And as we are in this 21 days of prayer, I wanted the closing for today, just be us uniting around the idea that we need help in our marriages and our country needs help knowing what true identity looks like. And so let's ask him for that today. Would you guys stand to your feet? And as we stand, I'm just gonna lead you and prompt you. And I just wanna encourage you to pray this to God and, and let this be a season and a time uh, this morning to just pray for even those people that you know, uh, pray for them by name who are struggling in these areas. Maybe it's a marriage or, or maybe it's, a, it's someone struggling with identity. You know who they are. There might be sons and daughters and friends um, that you're, you're trying to love right now. So let's lift them up together as a church. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Foothills Church. If you made a decision to follow Christ while listening today, or if you have some more questions about what that looks like, then let us know. You can text FC Decision to 97000, or you can head over to foothillschurch.com slash decision. We hope you have a great week.